So this class meets three more times. Um, so I thought this week and next, we'll deal with Solomon and his demons. And the last week, we will try to end on a happy note or a better note. Shlomo as the builder of the, uh, of the, of the Mikdash, the, build, the temple builder. That'll be the last class before Pesach. But today we have the demons. That's the title of the class. And um, I would begin with the demons that are found, or the Satan as it's known, which is found in the story of Shlomo that occupies the first 11 chapters of the first book of Mulachim, Mulachim Aleph. The term Satan is used for Shlomo's enemies, and they're very human enemies. And we have this uh, in the 11th chapter of Mulachim Aleph. If you have it on the Safari, you can find it in uh, Mulachim Aleph, chapter 11. Verse is, um, the chapter begins by telling us chapter 11, that Shlomo loved many foreign women, in, in, in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter being very central, we've already seen, and we'll see more about Pharaoh's daughter, but he loved many foreign women, Moaviot, Amoniot, Adomiot, Sidoniot, Chitiot, etc., including the daughter of Pharaoh. And then the text adds, from the nations, which God had commanded, B'nai Israel, Lotovo Bahem, and the Torah warned explicitly, actually, in two places that you should don't get involved with these women, says the Torah, because they'll turn your heart aside. That's the story of Baal Pa'ar in uh, the 25th chapter of Bamidbar. The warning is found earlier in chapter 34 of Sefer Shemot. Uh, don't get involved. Those are the ones that Shlomo cleaved to. And we're told elsewhere he had a thousand wives, right here. So he had 700 royal wives and 300 concubines. It's a lot of wives and concubines, a thousand. And his wife turned his heart away. I think we can presume that the wives uh, basically were partially, if not primarily, a political connection for Shlomo. A thousand wives, that's, that's a lot of wives. And we have to remember, of course, that when the Torah spoke of the king in chapter 17 of Devarim and issued a warning about the king, the king should not uh, be excessive. And one of the excesses that the Torah explicitly warns against, he should not have too many wives, and they shouldn't turn his heart aside. So the Torah actually gives a reason why it's forbidden to marry these wives, lest they turn his heart aside. So excess is problematic, and too many wives is very problematic. And Shlomo has a thousand wives. So that clearly is... Yarben Hashim, he has many, many wives. And uh, it says that in his old age, in his old age, they turned his heart aside to follow other gods. His heart was not whole with God, as was his, the heart of his father, David. We saw this last week with the Gemara elsewhere in Masechet Shabbat, 
sees a kind of contradiction in the verse. His heart was turned aside of the gods. And then we say he wasn't as good as David, which suggests he wasn't that bad. He wasn't as good as David, who's held up as the exemplar, but he wasn't so terrible. So the Gemara dealt with an internal so-called problem. And that was last week. And, but the next verse is clear. Which is the, it's a, it's a god of the, uh, goddess of the, of the, of the, of the Plishtim. And after Milkom, is a serious business. And it sounds like he himself, under the influence perhaps of the wives, is following foreign gods. He was not loyal to God. Okay, and in fact, in the next verse, down in verse number, was it six there? Uh, can't see the numbers, three, four, five, six. Ozif Nesh Bama. He built, actually built a, a shrine for Kamosh, the god of Moab, on the mountain facing Jerusalem. Molech, Molech, which is the, probably the primary idolatry in the Torah. Molech, Obedidoni, those are the primary ones. Molech, Shikutz B'nei Amon. And he builds this thing. He's the great builder. But he builds a shrine in his old age for foreign gods, and he builds it. It says opposite Jerusalem, on a hill near Jerusalem. It's really shocking, one might say. And he did the same for the other wives as well, who sacrificed to their gods. And God is angry with Shlomo. And God had warned Shlomo twice. And God says to Shlomo, because you have disobeyed me, you betrayed me, I'm going to not, your kingship will not continue. It will continue during your own life. I'm not going to tear away the kingship, and I won't fully tear it away on account of King David, David, my loyal king. But you will have, after your death, a partial kingdom. That's what God says to Shlomo in the beginning of chapter 11. It's, we know the story, but it's shocking in a way. The chronicler eliminates essentially all of this, but that's a separate discussion. What the book of Divrei Hayamim, how it presents Shlomo, it's very different. And now we have the next verse. Vayochem Hashem Satan Gushlomo. So God established, the English translator says Satan, an adversary. God raised up an adversary against Shlomo. Eit Hadad Adomi. His name was Hadad the Edomite. Mizera HaMelechu. Can I scroll down? Mizera HaMelechu Be'edom. Right? You see the verse? Scroll down. You gotta scroll down, so yeah. Okay, right. And now we give the background to the story of Hadad the Edomite. Okay, before we get to Hadad, whom the text calls a Satan, we know the word Satan. The word Satan can mean an adversary, but the word Satan or Satan can mean more than just a human adversary. It can mean some kind of uh, powerful force. It can mean powerful angel, a destructive angel. Uh, it's a, Satan has many possible meanings, but here the Satan refers to a person. So God sets up or raises up this Hadad or Adad as it's called, as a, as a Satan. Now, before we get to the Satan of the Book of Kings, from which we will jump to the Satan of the Talmud Bavli, um, I just wanted to say something additional about the Shlomo that we encounter in the Book of Kings. In this chapter, 
we know that he has many wives and um, he, uh, and that is a clear violation of what it says in the Torah, do not have many wives lest they turn the king astray, which is what happens. But if you think about the description of Shlomo in the first 10 chapters, it's not only that he has many wives, because the Torah in chapter 17 of Devarim, we remember, said you should, the king should not have too many wives. He shouldn't have too much money. He should have too much gold and silver. Um, he should not uh, have too many horses, lest he bring the people down to Mitzrayim. So Mitzrayim seems to be very central. The Torah is very concerned about the king making connections to Mitzrayim. And we know, and we've been focused in on this to some extent, that the first verse after Shlomo takes the throne is Mitzrayim. He, he, he connects to, to Pharaoh and to, through Pharaoh's daughter. So we know that's problematic. And if we think about how the text describes Shlomo, too many wives for sure, but he also has uh, a lot of money. In fact, he's about the richest guy, the wealthiest guy who ever existed. And the text in, uh, in Mulachim talks about money having essentially no, he has so much money that it's considered like nothing, like the street to pay with gold. That's the description of Shlomo. And I would add to that, not just that he has a lot of money, indescribable amount of money, but that the very building of the temple and especially his house, he spends 13 years building his house or houses and they are extraordinarily ornate. The description is a, of a incredibly ornate a building and 13 years to build it. More ornate than the temple, I would add. 13 years on his house, seven years on the temple. So in terms of Kesef is a hub, lo ma'od, he certainly is guilty of that. And so the wives he has, the money he has, and we know about the horses, the stables. Shlomo has many, many stables. For example, at the end of chapter 10, just the previous chapter, it says, after it describes the incredible wealth, which he has and is given his gifts and people come and donate to him all the time. Shlomo, this is chapter 10, verse number 26. Shlomo assembled chariots and, and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses which he stationed in the chariot towns, his chariot towns, and also in, Jer in Jerusalem. And the next verse, silver was like stones, and cedars, which are fancy wood, as plentiful as sycamores in the, in the Shvela. Where did he get the horses from? He got the horses from Egypt. And he would uh, procure them from a place called Kuvay. He bought them at a fixed price. One chariot cost 600 shekels of silver, a horse 150, fine. In turn, he exported them also to the kings, to the Chiti and the, and the Arameans. 
So we have the connection to Mitzrayim, and it's not just that he buys things from Egypt. We have to remember, and this is an important point, when you think about Egypt in the Torah, what you think about is Rechev Parashim. Chariots and horsemen is what typifies Mitzrayim. It's what the Egyptians pursued the Israelites at the sea with. Kosus Rechev Paro. So we have here a connection to Mitzrayim in the deepest sense. And it's precisely what the Chumash said the king should not do. So it turns out that he violated every single piece of what the Torah said about the king. Too many wives, too much money, too many horses, don't connect to Mitzrayim. And that's what Shlomo does, which of course raises the obvious question, given the fact that he's described as the wisest of all people. He's the greatest Chacham in the whole world. And everybody is going to Shlomo to hear his wisdom and not just going to hear his wisdom. He also is the presumed author, presumed by the Talmud, of three canonical books, the book of Proverbs, the book of Kohelet, and, and Shira Shirim. They're all ascribed to Shlomo. And certainly two of them, and maybe even three of them, but two of them, we would certainly classify what we call wisdom literature. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's the sage advice of Shlomo and virtually the entire book is ascribed to Shlomo. The book of Kohelet, it's another clear book of, of wisdom literature, a, a meditation upon life, a reflection upon life. He is the wisest of all. He was a Chacham before God granted him Chachma, and he's, he requests wisdom. That's a verse in Michelet. So that, that suits him to a T. So we can ask the question, which I think is a fair question, how could it be that the wisest of all people does some things that are extremely stupid. Now, I, maybe that's not even a question for all of us, but, but we'll ask it anyway. And that is very interesting that he, he is, his heart is turned aside. The Gemara elsewhere, I don't remember if I put it in the uh, sources or not, but the Gemara actually suggests that it's his cleverness that gets him in trouble because he says, I know the Torah said that don't have too many wives, etc. They'll turn your heart aside. But I'm so clever, I'm not going to be seduced by this, by what they are, what they could potentially do. So he's going to sort of outthink the Chumash, says the Talmud. That's what gets him in trouble, you know. He's so clever. I understand the reasons for everything. Okay, I understand the reason. In the case of the women, it's pretty explicit in the Torah, but he understands all the reasons. And because he understands the reasons or thinks he understands the reasons, he thinks he's able to, to uh, not be entrapped. And he is entrapped, either because it's, it's the weakness of the, uh, you know, the weakness of the flesh, or maybe no one fully understands all the reasons. That's another possibility. And these two possibilities, I think, are within the Talmudic text are both possible. In any event, I wanted to make the point that before we get to the Satan over here, we have to see Shlomo's downfall as a, um, it's the connection to Mitzrayim in the Book of Kings, which is the downfall. And be, I want to reiterate what I mentioned in passing last week about the Book of Kings, 
we have to remember the book of Kings is a book of exile. Someone sitting in exile and asking this very simple question, how did we get in this mess in the first place? And looking back at the past and reinterpreting the past in light of the present and seeing the mistakes that were made over time. The king who dooms Israel in the book of Kings, the last nail in the coffin, is named Menashe. And that cannot be a coincidence that his name is Menashe. Menashe is the name of Yosef's oldest son. It means forgetfulness. For Joseph said, I want to forget my father's, my past, my father's house, and my suffering. It's to Joseph who's assimilating into Mitzrayim. And for the book of Murachim, that's a major factor over here. And the connection to Mitzrayim begins with Shlomo. It may even begin before Shlomo, but I don't have the time now to deal with that. I will say one thing, and maybe we'll get back to it, who knows, if we'll have time in, during this set of classes. But the term Satan, actually, as an, as an adversary, does not appear in the book of Shmuel, but it appears in the book of Debrei Hayamim in a story that appears in Shmuel, namely the story where King David takes a census, which is a violation. The king is not supposed to take a census of the people. In the book of Shmuel, it says that God incited David or tested David. God was angry against Israel, Vayoset et David Bahem, Hasata, incitement. But in the book of Chronicles, in First Chronicles chapter 21, it says, Vayamot Satan Yisrael, a Satan arose. And there it sounds like not necessarily a human Satan. It could even be a, a non-human Satan, an angry angel, an avenging angel, angel of death or whatever. So we do have the word Satan in Divrei Hayamim in a story that the last story in the book of Shmuel, chapter 24 of Second Samuel, and that's an interesting, maybe we'll come back to that when we get maybe next week when we deal more with the demons. But we have to set up the demons first because the story we'll be dealing with, one of the more famous Agadot in the Talmud, we always have to remember that the Midrash, the Agadah, has always the biblical text in mind. It jumps to a hundred different places, but it's always connected to the biblical text. So the first thing we notice is that Shlomo is has a satan over here and the satan in chapter 11 before we get to the satan of of the agada but what do we know about this satan this human adversary of solomon so it says back to chapter 11 this is chapter 11 in verse number 14 it says that god established a satan an adversary against shlomo his name was Hadad. He was an Edomite. And this is the story. In verse number 15, So there's a war against Edom. And Yoav, who's the general of the army, stayed in there an additional six months. He, he was there to bury the dead. Sounds like bury his dead. But during the time he's busy burying his dead, he went on a, a uh, I might say a rampage, and he kills all of the, uh, all the males in Edom. 
he remained there for six months until he had killed all the men of Edom. Now, you never kill all the men. There's always a survivor. And in this case, the survivor is named Adad or Hadad. So here we are told, So Adad and a contingent of Edomites from his father's, uh, his father's servants came with him, Ito, so he escapes from David's army. He escapes from David. He escapes from Israel after the massacre of the Edomites. And where does he go to take refuge? He goes to Egypt. He goes to Mitzrayim. This is going to be the, one of the Satans who is going to undercut or try to undermine Shlomo's reign. So right away, it's interesting that he takes refuge in the land of Egypt. Egypt is the place where Shlomo has these deep connections. Pharaoh's daughter and all those horses and all those stables and the chariots and the horsemen. And here we have a little story about Adad. It says, Vayakumu, so Adad left when he was very young. In verse 18, Vayakumu mi Midian, Vayavo Paran, Vayahu Anashim Imami Paran, Vayavo Mitzrayim, El Paro Melch Mitzrayim, Vayitain Robayit. So what does the story remind us of? <clears throat> he comes to Egypt and he goes to Pharaoh. He collects other men, right? He leaves from, he, he leaves there from Midian. <clears throat> he, from Midian, he gets to Egypt and he collects other people with him. He goes to Paro who gives him food who gives him a land, who gives him a house. So what does this remind us of? What character or characters does this remind us of? That's Yosef. One is Joseph for sure. And there's another character too, who takes refuge in Egypt. Yirmiyahu. How about Moshe? Oh, right, right. Moshe, of course, and we're not gonna take care of this now, the character of Moshe and Yosef in the Chumash, forget this book, are intertwined. Moshe essentially, I, I once formulated, Moshe is what Yosef might have become had Yosef lived, lived on. He dies at 110, which is 10 years before 120. He's on a certain path when he dies. He talks about returning to the land. He makes them swear to bring them back. He talks about reconciliation. He says, I am not God, and he dies. It's Moshe that brings Yosef's bones back. So Moshe is actually a continuation. When we're studying the book of Shemot, we could demonstrate this clearly that Moshe and Yosef, for our purposes, and for the purpose of the writer of this book of Kings, he, the writer is recalling both the story of Joseph and the story of Moshe, the two that take refuge in Egypt. And in both cases, Midian is involved. In the case of Yosef, he sold to the Midianites. Or maybe they sell him in turn to the Ishmaelites or the Midianites pull him out of the pit. In the case of Moshe, he meets the daughters of the priests of Midian, Ruel, who gives him lechem, right? Kirin lo lechem, he says, right? Joseph also eats with the Egyptians. They won't eat the lechem with him. So Joseph finds a place with Pharaoh. Moshe finds a place with Midian and with the daughter of Pharaoh, Bat Paro. Moshe is taken by Bat Paro. So here we have the other side of Bat Paro. In short, the point is 
that let's call this character Adad a Joseph Moshe character without delving in that deeply at this point. And they, the, the, this character is being protected by Mitzrayim. So when Yitro, Yitro gave Moshe a space, he gave Moshe a wife, he gave Moshe food. Joseph is given a position in Mitzrayim with Pharaoh. Joseph is given commendation. Joseph is given a land, Eretz Goshen, right? Joseph says to his brothers, be near me in the land of Goshen. So we have a conflation of the two characters, the, the acceptance by Mitzrayim of the stranger, which runs counter to what we think about Mitzrayim in general. But over here, this character is, is aided, abetted, protected, nourished by none other than Paro. So this is where he goes. And now we are told in the continuation, this is the Satan, and we are told, and he gives him, Pharaoh gives him a, uh, a wife, just as Pharaoh gave Joseph a wife. Remember the wife that Pharaoh gave Joseph? Her name is Osnat, the daughter of Potiphera. Yitro gave Moshe a wife, Zipporah. So the two stories are conflated over here. He has a wife, he has a good job, he has lechem, he's got everything he needs. And not only that, the wife is the Pharaoh's sister-in-law, Achot Ishto. Achot is married to the queen's sister, actually. It's Adad, <coughs> the stranger. Like Joseph. Joseph is married probably to the daughter of maybe the high priest of Egypt. Bat Potiphera Cohen Owen, person of great significance, okay? Moshe marries the daughter of the priest. And now, and she gives birth to, they have a child, name is Genuvat, another Joseph connection. What did Joseph say about himself? It's a Joseph Moshe story. He found his place. She's nursed another Moshe connection here. The child is nursed by in, in Pharaoh's own house, right? By Higinuvat Beit Paro, Betoch Benei Paro, and Pharaoh considers this child to be one of his own children. So this guy has completely made it. Vadav Shamab Mitzrayim, Kishachav Davidim Avotav, Vichimet Yoav. Hadad hears that King David and Yoav have died. What verse does that recall for us, my friends? What verse does that recall? I mean, we spend all the time studying Malachim. We're not doing that. We gotta get to the demons, but. The old king died. It's explicit. God said to Moshe, go back now. The people who seek your death have died. The old Pharaoh was dead. The people who seek your life have died exactly the verse over here. He hears that they have died. He's to return. So he goes to Paro, right? He has permission to leave. Now, in the case of Joseph, he has permission to bury his father. He can't leave, but he gets permission to temporarily leave. In the case of Moshe, he goes to Yitro in chapter four and says, I want to go back and see if my brothers are still alive. He doesn't tell him the truth, 
which is he never plans to come back. But at the burning bush, God says to Moshe, you got to go. Moshe doesn't want to go. But Moshe agrees to go. And he begs permission from his father, Yitro, who says, Lechu Shalom, go in peace. So we have basically, what is the point over here of the story for our purposes? The point is a simple one. And that is, apart from the, the uh, intricate connections, the intricacies of the story, the multiple connections to Joseph and Moshe, who themselves are interconnected, but it's a simple point. Here's the king, this is the Satan. Aided, abetted, nourished, protected, supported by none other than Paro. And he's going to be the Satan against the one who has the deepest links to Paro, to Paro's daughter, right? And this is the this is the other side of, of, of Shlomo. This is the one also married to, to Pharaoh's family, Pharaoh's sister-in-law, nursed in the house of Paro, child, his child's Pharaoh's child. So he's going to be, he may connect to Mitzrayim or think he's making alliances and allegiances with Mitzrayim, but it's very Mitzrayim himself, which is one of the cause of his problems. That's the starters. This is the Satan over here. And of course, the other point is that it is, you know, it's, uh, it started in the time of, of, of King David. The, 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 the writer here, the book of Mulachim, wants to suggest that the seeds over here were sown not during Shlomo's reign, but the seeds were sown during the reign of David, perhaps even hinting at the fact that the killing of all the Edomite males might have been excessive. There's no reason to kill the Edomite males. The Torah, which obviously has a very different sense of what's fair in war, if not in love, but certainly in war, uh, then we may hold, but even the Torah talks about killing the seven nations and never talked about killing the Edomites. So Edom is a brother, basically. That we don't have in the Chumash. So it could be that there's an excess over here. Mm -hmm. He was there to bury his own dead. But uh, so the, the seeds were sown earlier. But this is the Satan over here. And I'm going to stop in one minute and take, uh, and take uh, comments or questions. But Pharaoh says to him, Mata chaserimi. Pharaoh says, why? What do you what do you miss a year? That you want to go. Says no, I want you to I want you I want to go back. He's happy where he is. He's a man on a mission. Maybe that's one of the reasons he's called the Satan. Perhaps Satan, though it means a human adversary, but what the word for God's emissaries is the word Malach. A Malach is a messenger. So this is a man on a, on, on a mission, actually. He's very happy where he is. He could stay where he is, like Moses. He could stay where he is. He's got a nice father-in-law. He loves his father-in-law. I'm not sure he loves his wife, but he loves his father-in-law. He's got a good job. He's safe. But he's given a task, which he initially resists, but he accepts the task to go back and to deliver his so-called brothers, his people. So that's the story over here. He's the Satan. And then one more verse. Now we have a second Satan, not just one. There's more than, there's more than one Satan. And he, he had escaped from Hadad Ezer. Hadad Ezer was another war that David undertook against him. And he also escapes when David killed, right? 
Barog David Otam, and they went to Damascus and they reigned in Damascus. By his Satan Israel, Asher Hadad, by Yakots Israel, by Imroch Araram, verse number 25, by Yakots Israel, by Yakots, how do they translate over here by Yakots? Um, he was what? Repudiated the authority. Repudiated the authority. I don't know if that's the best translation, but the writer has something specific in mind. What does the writer have in mind in this verse? Vayakots remembers the first chapter of the book of Exodus. Vayakutsu mipnei Israel, right? Or the verse in, 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 with, with Balak. Vayakots Moab. So Vayakots Moab, Vayakots Mitzrayim, Vayakutsu. It plays off once again a verse lifted from the first chapter of the book of Exodus. Hmm. Plays off, of course, Mitzrayim from top to bottom in theme and in language. Now, these are two satans of Shlomo, but they're not his main problem. His main problem is the third guy who plays a very central role in the book. We just take one minute on this. I'll stop for questions, comments, and then we'll start with the Agadah. We'll start this week and finish next week about the demons. We'll get just to be one minute. <clears throat> that is... Oviyakutsu. Yes. Yeravam ben Nevat. Ephrati, Minatsreda, Tshemimo Tsua Isha Amana, Ebed Rishkomo, by Yarem Yad Bamelech. Now we have the main character. He's not called directly as Satan, but he's the third adversary and the main one, and the future king of Israel. And he is a person who works for Shlomo. And by Yarem Yad Bamelech, he raised his hand against the king. All right. He uh, he lifted his hand against the king. He rebelled against the king. Concerning mm -hmm. the following, this is what caused him to rebel against the king. And it's very unclear. We don't understand what the problem is. It says Shlomo had built had built the, uh, the Milo, was an extension of the town. He repaired the breach of the city of his father. The truth is that the text doesn't give us the reason he rebels against the king. Speak Yosef. Yes, I'll get to that. Yes, that's true. He's from the family of Joseph. He's from the house of Joseph. Once again, in it's Ryan Link. But I'm saying the plain meaning of the text is, and this is the situation in which Yerobam rebelled against him, and it leads into the next story. When he's walking around and the prophet uh, confronts Yerobam, encounters Yerobam, uh, tears the garment into 12 pieces, hands him 10 of the pieces and says, you ought to be the future king. So the the text itself, the plain meaning of the text, does not suggest a reason. But if you recall, the Agadah suggests a reason. The reason is that Shlomo had built the Milo. He had closed up the gates of the city. If you remember the Talmudic passage that we saw a couple of weeks ago, they interpret that to mean that he was angry because 
He says, your father, King David, opened the gates of the city. He wanted people to come into the city. He wanted people to come and go into the city to celebrate in the temple, to serve God in the holy city. But you have closed up the city. You don't want people to leave. You want people to stay in town so they can serve Pharaoh's daughter. That's the Midrashic understanding of the Talmud that we saw uh, either last week or two weeks ago. It's not the plain meaning of the text, but the Agadah is picking up on something clearly over here. As somebody just commented, Yerubam is from Yosef. So it's the Yosef Mitzrayim connections that at the end of the day, these are the adversaries to Shlomo. And how ironic, the very person who makes all the connections to Mitzrayim will be undone, will be uh, undone by, through the support of Egypt and those connected to Mitzrayim. This is all by way of introduction to our topic for the rest of tonight and next week, which is the demon story, which if you're not familiar with it is an incredible Agadah, truly. And we'll get there in a couple of minutes, but first let me stop here and take comments or questions or insights of anybody who wants to speak up now, please do. Or in the chat for that matter. Uh, is um, Shlomo taking Pilag Shim? Is that also a political? Why is he taking 300 Pilag Shim? What's that about? I assume they both are, you know, the kings do have wives and concubines. David had Nashimu Pilag Shim. Uh, you know, produce more children, I suppose, to build up your, you know, the, um, the irony, of course, in the case of King David is that the the problems that David encounters essentially come essentially from his own family. Because the great rebellion against David is his son, Absalom. The fight of Amnon and Absalom. Yoav, who he ends up killing at the end, is the is is David's nephew. Yoav ben Sebuya. Sebuya, at least in the book of Chronicles, is David's sister. Amasa, the other guy who's killed, is the son of Abigail, David's other sister. He has two sisters. One is the general first of Absalom, and then his own general, who's assassinated by Yoav. And the other sister is the mother, mother of the three brothers, Yoav, Asael, and uh, Abishai, two of whom are David's strong men. And the third is killed by, is killed by Abner. So uh, the irony is that the, you know, it's the, the most dangerous people for David are the members of his own family. Keep your friends close, keep your uh, enemies close and your friends closer maybe, or your enemies closer, I'm not sure. But in any event, in the case of David, the problem stems from his own family. So I assume the concubines like the seven, why 700 wives? It's because uh, those are political alliances. It's hard to believe he falls in love with a thousand women. Um, it's funny in a way because Song of Songs is ascribed to, um, to uh, to Shomo, mm -hmm. and it's all about one man and one woman. It's not about any of the others, right? Achati onati tamati, achati In Shira Shirim, the king has a million wives and concubines, but there's only one, says the woman who speaks in Shira Shirim. It's a woman's voice, it's just one. And uh, so it is perhaps in a sense ironic. What Shlomo's role was in Shira Shirim is another interesting question, but we can't 
deal with all the problems. In any event, I short answer is I believe it's not, these are political alliances, fundamentally political. And the more family the king has, the bigger the king's family, in theory, the safer the king could be. Although in the case of David, it doesn't seem to play out that way. Rabbi David, in, ver in uh, verse 27, yes. is, is it Shlomo who builds the, the Milo and closes up the parrots? And if so, then what is the Davar? He doesn't explain it. No, it doesn't explain it. First, I think it is Shlomo. Shlomo is the great builder. Mm -hmm. And I, what I was saying before was that is actually referring to what comes afterwards. It's saying, it's saying Yeravim ben Levat was the important person. And then in verse number uh, 29, is what the, when yeah. he leaves Jerusalem, then Achiyah the Shiloni, right. this prophet finds him and talks to him and, and hands him the kingship. But so it, just, it doesn't say why, in fact, you know, it doesn't, doesn't say that Yeravim is specifically angry at Shomo. Maybe it intimates it by the fact that he has uh, these other adversaries, maybe it suggests that he's part of a larger conspiracy. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it suggests here what it says later on that after Shlomo dies, the people go to his son and say, Your father was very harsh. How about letting up on us? So, from that statement, mm -hmm. let, me, let me just make it one other one last point about Shlomo and Mitzrayim, which is an important point. And that is <clears throat> that it's not just that he marries Pharaoh's daughter. But the language of, and not just Rechev Parashim, but for example, if you look, for example, in chapter five, which describes what Shlomo does, let's find those verses in chapter five. Let's see. Um, let's see if I can find this. Um, yes, chapter five, verse 27. Mm -hmm. Chapter five, verse 27. Vayal Shlomo Mas, we call Yisrael. King Solomon imposed a mas. Now, what does a mas mean in the Bible? Nowadays, a mas in modern Hebrew is a taxes. But a mas in the in the Bible is not not taxes that you pay taxes. Not that people like to pay taxes, but um, a mas in biblical Hebrew tends to be human taxes. <coughs> the mas over here is not money. The mas is forced to labor. He conscripts people into his, call it his army of builders. How do you build the great, how did Solomon build his big house? How did Solomon build the temple? He built it through forced labor. That's called a mas. And where else do we have the word mas in the Torah? Take a wild guess. Egypt. Egypt. <laughs> A description of Paro. He placed over them some collectors of the mass in order to afflict them besivlotam. And the word besivlotam is a word that's found in conjunction with Shlomo, actually. Uh, yes, it's right here, in fact, verse 29. By he with Shlomo, Shibim Elef no say Sabo, Ushmonim Elef Chotzev Bahar. Solomon had 70,000 porters and 80,000 quarriers in the hills. No, say Sabo, Siblotam, means in the story of Exodus that Pharaoh had taskmasters in their, in their toil, with Siblotam. These are two, two terms that we have in conjunction. In other words, long story short, according to the Book of Kings, the temple is built through forced labor. 
And that's a very, very, very important point because in contrast, for example, in the building of the Mishkan, what is the key word in the building of the Mishkan? The key word, Nidava, Nidava, right? Right? So Nidava is a free will offering. You don't force people to do anything. You can get results on one level, but you also engender enormous antagonism and you take away their freedom. So it's all part of Mitzrayim, basically. It's built through forced labor. And that's what the book, it's interesting, by the way, as an aside, that in the book of Chronicles, which describes the building of the Solomon's temple, a new word pops up in the book of Chronicles, Nidava. In the book of Chronicles, it talks about the word Nidava appears over and over again, suggesting that there's a voluntary element to the building. And that's not true in the book of Kings. So the point, my point is, you have the word Sebel, you have the word Mas, you have the forced labor, essentially forcing them to do it. You also happen to have the word rodim ba'am, those the, the people who are rotir debo, rodim, which appears in Bayikra, in terms of slavery. In short, the Book of Kings at least raises the question about the temple, which I think is a very important question to raise in, in general, not just about the temple, but about but about many things, about, about, about law, about halacha. And that is, does it actually matter how you get there? If you end up with a good result, does it matter how you get there or not? What's the difference how you get there? You had a good result. Do the end justify the means? So that's a very interesting question. Something to think about. My own personal view is, no, it doesn't. And I think the way you get there is very important, not just what you get to, but how you arrive at, at, at what you want to get to for any number of reasons. But in the case of Shlomo, I wanted to emphasize this about Mitzrayim and about the Satan before we jump into this Agadah. It's been a long introduction, but I think a very important one to appreciate because what I'm suggesting is that when we read these Agadot, they are not divorced from their context. I say context plural. One is the, the coming out of the biblical story. And they may take you in a completely different place, but they are fully aware of the biblical story. We have to always bear that in mind. And then there is the local context. The Agadita in the Gemara doesn't just appear in a vacuum. It appears in different places in the Bavli, and we should always pay attention to where it appears. So let me now, let us begin now uh, with, we only have about 15 minutes. Let me, let's begin with the Agadita. Next week, we'll just continue with this Agadita, which is in, in the uh, second Gitan, but we, and the, the Mishnah is on Daf Samach Zayin Omen Bet. Do we have that? Can you post that one? It's one of the last sources. This will be the source for the remainder today and next week. And the following week, we'll get building the temple. So we have a Mishnah here. The Mishnah talks about a, 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 an issue, which is, this is Tractate Gitan. Right? The man gives the woman a bill of divorce in Tractate Gitan. And um, the Mishnah raises an interesting question about what if the, the person who gives the bill of divorce, like any legal act, has to have mental competency? What if the person is incompetent, mentally incompetent, so the bill of divorce is not valid? What about a person who is competent, sometimes is declared to be lucid, 
and other times has what they call a temporary insanity. So we have to see when the person made the determination to write or to give the bill of divorce. That's, that's the Mishnah. Right, now we can scroll down some more. We can skip the first part of this. Let's get to, skip that part about temporary insanity. Let's we'll stop a second. The, the Gemara talks about, the, the, the Mishnah said, Misha achazato kurdiyaikos. What does kurdiyaikos mean? So the Gemara says, kurdiyaikos is a, is a demon. A demon who, who can cause one to lose sanity. Fine. Fine. And then the Gemara says, what should you do if you're sick? How do you, how do you get better? We shouldn't necessarily ad- adhere to the, uh, the medicine of the Talmud, may not be our medicine, but anyway, it says, the afflicted person should eat red meat roasted over coals and drink wine diluted with a large amount of water. Fine, then we can scroll down some more. Scroll down some more. Scroll down some more, 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 re- stop. Back up, back up, back up, back up. Let's see, now. It was related. So that's what we have so far. Nothing to do with Solomon's demons. Now, before we get to Solomon's demons, which we'll have to start with next week, but there's a story in the Talmud that precedes it. And this is always important. There are people that study the Agadot in a vacuum. And to my way of thinking, that's a bad mistake. We always have to see the context. So the context is the following. It was related. Following. So I'll read the English at this point. But with Amram Hasid, when the members of the exilarch's house is the Reish Galuta, the exilarch is in Babel, and he's the chief, the chief rabbi of Babel, and he, he is a he is a he was a great scholar. Nachman, for example, is the exilarch. He's a great scholar, but he also is a and it's also a, a a political position. He has a lot of political power. So they call him the exilarch, the Reish Galuta. When the members of the Exilarch's house would afflict Rav, Nach, Rav Amram the Pious, Rav Amram Hasidah. So the people who work for the Exilarch, the Exilarch is Rav Nachman, one of the great sages of the Talmud, but he has a political position and the people that work in his house, like the king has a castle, has a center, people work for the king. So the people that work for the Exilarch, it says it here and elsewhere in the, in the Talmud, they weren't so pious. And when this fellow Amram Hasidah would come, Amram the pious, they would make him lie down to sleep all night on the snow. That is not a nice thing to do to anybody, and particularly not to Amram Hasidah. Pious, this pious, this pious person is lying in the snow. The next day they would say to him, they would ask him a question. What is preferable for the master? They talk very, sir, you know, they give him a lot of respect. What do you want? What should we bring you? So Rav Amram said to himself, he said, whatever I say to them, they'll do the opposite. Anything I say, do the opposite. He said to them, bring me red meat, roasted over coals, with that, and dilute the wine. So they bring him fatty meat, roasted over coals, with undiluted wine, which is, of course, what he wanted. And then he was cured from, from, from the chills, okay? That's the story over here. The story for our purposes is about the Reish Galuta of Nachman, and the people that work for him. So the people that, he may be a wonderful person, but they afflict the pious. Okay, now let's scroll down some more. Fine, the context is what, what is good for, for, for this particular illness, fine. Skip that. Now it is Rav Yosef, where it says it, it is related, stop. Rav Yosef, fine, no, wait one second. Now we have to skip that. The Gemara relates another incident right there, okay? 
Another, another incident, fine. The excellent, the Reish Kaluta said to Rav Sheshit, right, at the top of the page, I'm going to Reish Kaluta to Rav Sheshit. So the Reish Kaluta said to Rav Sheshit, my time will also side Margabon. Says to Rav Sheshit, who was a great scholar, one of the great scholars of that generation, together with Rav how come Rav Sheshit, he honestly said, why don't you eat with me? How come you don't eat with me? So Rav Sheshit said, because, because, to go avdi I don't trust the people that work for you. They're going to give me Aver Menachai. Aver Menachai is a limb severed from a living animal, which is a very serious uh, prohibition. It's even prohibited for non-Jews, according to the Talmud Bavli. I don't trust them. So fine. So the, so the Reb Nachman said to him, how do you know that? Who, who says this is so? I, I, don't, I, I don't believe you. That can't be true. So Rav Shesha says, I'll show you that it's true. So there's a story over here. He tells his servant, the animal, there's an animal they had prepared. And he tells his servant to steal one of the legs from the animal. If you scroll down, bring me one of the legs of the animal. Fine. Now, so the servant brings him a leg of the animal. So they set out the portions for the, for the, for the Rav Shesha. And Rav Shesha says out loud, what, this animal only has three legs? Where's, where's the other leg? So the servants in the court go to some living animal and cut off its leg. And they bring it to Rav Sheshit. Then Rav Sheshit takes out the leg. He says, did the animal have uh, five legs? So he's showing him that they're cutting off a limb of another animal and giving him this. So you can't trust them on every menachai. The people that work for the Reish Galuta are no good. Fine. So the Reish Galuta realizes he can't rely on his servants. You know, he says to him, you know, what I would do is I would fire the servants. But he doesn't fire the servants. Have them prepare the food in my, in, my, in my presence. So that there's another story over here. They prepare the food, but they put a little bone in the meat. So that Rav Sheshis, who is, by the way, Rav Sheshis happens to be blind. So he can't see anything. So they put a bone in his food. Food is all kosher. But they put a bone in, hoping that when he eats it, he would choke. It says he's blind, okay. But Rav Sheshis doesn't trust them. So he feels that he wraps it up in his scarf. Fine. Now we'll continue some more. Scroll down, scroll down. Right after he ate, right, so he eats it. So after he ate, the servants realize what, what he's done, right? They figure he didn't, he didn't eat the meat. So they said to the Reish Kaluta, someone stole a silver cup from us. Sounds like Joseph, remember the story? When they're searching for it, they found a piece of meat inside the scarf. So the, so the servants look, say, look, look, to Reb Nachman, look, look, look at this guy, what he's trying to do. So Rav Shesha says, this meat was no good. Therefore, he, he, this meat had leprous spots on it. So that's not true. They prepare it and it turns out that it is true. So let's scroll down some more. So they first, they, they try to choke him. So meanwhile, Rav Shesha, though he's blind, is outsmarting them. When he's walking out the door, they dig up, the servants dig a pit. And they, they put a, uh, a mat on top of it. He wouldn't notice and he would fall into the pit. Exactly what the Chumash says, These are the servants of Nachman, okay? So he's about to walk, he's walking through, and there's a child nearby. He says, tell me the pasuk that you are, that you are reading. This is common, it's common in the, in the Bible, it's called the Kredon. Well, what pasuk are you reading? He quotes a verse from Shmuel, turn to your right or turn to your left. The Avner said to Asayel. And he said to his servant, what do you see? He said, I see a mat. He says, move away from it. We'll go around it. Fine. So then Reb Nachman, so, so fine. So, so 
he had been, he also had been warned about this. So he, so he, so someone said to him, how did you know to avoid the bat? He said, for three reasons. First of all, someone hinted at it. Second of all, the puzzle. And third, I suspect them all together. Fine. Now, this is a story about, this is a story about, in theory, about the, um, the first part of Amram Hasida, about eating fatty meat with, with, with undiluted wine or whatever, diluted wine is going to help you. Fine. From this, we move to the story of the servants of the Reshto Ruta. And now we come finally to Solomon and his demons, right? Because the Mishnah mentioned Kordiyaikus, which the Gemara says is a demon. And this becomes, one might say, the, the, the hook upon which to tell one of the more famous stories of the Talmud Bavli, which we will deal with uh, just a couple of minutes now. And next week, this is, we'll spend all the time on this. I hope we can finish it next week. And the Gemara begins with the following question. They quote a verse from Kohelet. The second verse of Kohelet with the king, where Shlomo talks about his great success in life, his wealth, and the pasuk, which is very different, is he said, sharim I brought for myself sharim and sharot, could be musical instruments or singers, v'tanugot adam, and pleasures of the human being, shida v'shidot. I had in my house pools and bathhouses, musical instruments, maybe music singers, men and women. Shida v'shidot. What does shida v'shidot mean? So the Gemara will be, begins here with two opinions. One is shida v'shidot are here in Babylonia and Babel, we, they interpreted male demons and female demons. In Eretz Israel, they said carriages, but here in Bavel, suggesting that in Bavel, they're much more into the superstition, actually. The Shidah and Shidot, the Zugot, etc., all that business, Babylonian. Eretz Israel said carriages. No, here it means, Shlomo says, I had in my court male and female demons. Now, what I wanted to say is that how much time do I have here, by the way? What time is it? You have two minutes left. Two minutes to nine. Two minutes to nine? Okay, fine. If I take three, you'll forgive me, I take three minutes. But just, let me start with this. Here is, here, I wanted to raise a question, and next week we will deal with Shidav Shidot and the demons of Shlomo. And it's, if you're not familiar with the story, it's, it's something to, to read. But here's my question. You know, we, this is, we're doing with Shlomo, we'll get to the demons next week. But you know, when you read the Bafli and you read about David's court, David has uh, Doeg, Shaul has Doeg Adomi, David has Achitofel, uh, Amasa ben Yeter, Yoav, you name it, Shimi ben Gera, and the Talmud presents them all, even the ones who have no portion in the world to come, as incredibly gifted scholars. Shimi ben Geira is David's Rebbe, uh, Shlomo's Rebbe, Mephibosheth is David's Rebbe, Doeg and Achitofel are unbelievable learners, they're the greatest scholars of the generation, etc., etc. And I always wondered about this for the last several years, what is that actually about? What is it about turning David Amelech and uh, Achitofel and Doeg and Shimi and Amasa into the greatest scholars? 
And I want to just raise as a possibility the following thought. And that is, typically people think about it as the rabbinic, the rabbinic view is to turn these people, let's face it, when you read about Shimi and Achitofel and Yoav, I mean, it's never black and white, good and bad. But these are people basically, these are a bunch of killers. The people that David has around him, whether it's Achitofel, whether it's Shimi, whether it's Yoav, Amasa, Avner, these, these, are, these are warriors, killers, and they can be extremely ruthless and extremely devious. So the thinking of, you know, but the rabbinic view, the Bavli wants to turn them all into Tamide Chachamim. That's one way to understand it. But I'm wondering, actually, if there's another way to understand it. They're not so interested in turning Achitofel and Shemi into Tamide Chachamim. Maybe they're more interested in turning their own rabbis into Achitofel and Shimi. And this is a very good example of that over here. The Reish Galuta, okay, it's not Rav Nachman over here, who is without question, one of the main Amoraim in the Talmud Bavli. Rav Nachman, Hilchot Abedinik, Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman is one of the main people in the Talmud. His court is filled with people who try to choke and murder a blind person. That's his court. And you gotta wonder about this, what it's saying about the king. We know what we know about the king's court. I'm not talking about Achashverosh's court. The king's court is problematic for any number of reasons. Because first of all, everybody in the king's court wants to please the king. And whatever the king says they're gonna go along with, no matter how crazy or how wrong it is, there are always people who are thinking about what would the king want even if the king, we just had a perfect example in, in, in Megillat Esther. When Haman is falling on the bed where Esther is there, and the king says, what, you would even seduce the queen in my own house? What is this? Then Harvona speaks up. You know, he says, Haman in his own house built a gallows. He was going to hang Mordechai, who spoke well of the king. And the king said, hang him on those gallows. Let me ask you a question. Where was Harvona 20 minutes ago? before the king said that. He knows the whole story. He knows that Mordechai spoke well of the king. He knows it. He's, Chabon is one of the king's advisors. He knows the whole deal, kept his mouth shut. Until we saw a moment where he could speak, he knows what the king is thinking. And then suddenly he's our best friend. So the combination of currying favor with the king, what would the king want as outlandish as it might be? And as immoral as it might be, you go along with it. And the other part is, when you're close to power, you also seek power. So the combination of seeking power, I would say, wanting to stay in office or wanting to win the next election, the combination of that and the combination of trying to curry favor with those in power, that's a deadly combination. So I wonder out loud whether the Bavli is interested in making heroes or rabbinic scholars of all the cutthroats in David's court, whether actually the Bavli, which is extraordinarily critical of its own people, right and left, has something very different in mind, which is not to necessarily elevate Doeg and Achitofel to the greatest scholars, but it's making a different point. You can be a great scholar and you can also be a demon, which of course is the main point of the next Agatha that we'll get to next week. So I'll stop at this point
I think you uh, have it covered. Uh, thank you, as always, Rabbi Silber, for a fascinating and fun class. And to everyone who joined us here on Zoom, on Jerisha Live, and on Facebook for being part of Jerisha's learning community. As Rabbi Silber already mentioned, lots and lots of classes happening. Get your fix. So everyone have a wonderful night. Be well and hope to see you again next week, if not sooner. <laughs>